Lord, that when we were yet your enemies, you still made a way for us to be reconciled to you. Made a way for us. And that way was Jesus. And we see your plan enacted tonight, even in the evil of humanity's ways. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for what you offered us in Jesus. Amen. Amen. So like I said, if you're in your Bible tonight, you're opening to John 11:47 is where we will start. We'll go through to the end of uh, 12 verse 11. So that will be the passage we'll cover tonight. And the passage, remember, where we stopped last time was this, that Jesus had done this great miracle and raised Lazarus from the dead. One of the climactic signs in all of Jesus' ministry was the raising of Lazarus. And remember at the end, many were coming to him and believing in Jesus. And yet some went to tell the Pharisees. An ominous note, how we ended last week. And so that is the last thing we read. And here we go in verse 47. Therefore, therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and we're saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, the Pharisees go to the, the leading council. It's called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is functionally the ruling council of, of the Jewish nation, right? They, they are appointed by Rome. They've been given authority by Rome to rule over the Jewish nation, which is semi-independent. Right? They're under Roman rule, but they are allowed on a large scale to do what they want as a nation of people ruled by their priests. But of course, the chief priests are chosen at the whim of the Romans. And what's interesting is if you read the Old Testament, a high priest's office was for life. They were appointed for life, and then it was a hereditary line, so Aaron's line would continue down his genetic lineage, right? But at this point, high priest is not a lifetime appointment. The Romans choose who they see fit, and when you fall out of favor, they can quickly choose another What's interesting is what we know of Caiaphas speaks to what uh, probably a ruthless politician he was. Because he had been high priest, by the time his high priesthood ended, he had been high priest for 19 years. He was a skillful uh, politician when it came to Rome and to the people. And so they convened this council the chief priests, these people who had been put in power by Rome over them. And the council says, what are we doing? <coughs> For this man is performing many miraculous signs. It almost sounds like, a, like, a, like they've come to their senses, doesn't it? What are we doing? This man's performing many miraculous signs. Let's reassess how we've been treating him. He, maybe he is the Messiah. No. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, what are we doing allowing this rogue, itinerant, homeless, whatever he might be, he's 
They clearly don't believe he's a prophet, right? How dare we let him go on this way? If we do, everyone will start to believe. We know better, don't we? We know better than the ignorant masses. They're all starting to believe we've got to nip this in the bud. And if we don't, if we don't, the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And they were right. Because we know in AD 70, the Jewish, who had been a rebellious people under Roman rule, had their temple destroyed in AD 70 when Titus came to destroy it. I think it's Titus. Anyway, the Roman general came to destroy it. And he destroyed the temple, and the Jewish nation was never the same. It was never the same. And the priest ceased to exist, which is actually where we start the rabbinic school, right? The rabbis of today are directly the product of the fact that the temple was destroyed. They became the leading figures, the teachers, because they weren't tied to the temple like the priests. Once the temple was destroyed, the priest's power was gone. So, we must stop this Jesus, or we will lose our place in our nation. And of course, their concern is less for the nation and more for their position, isn't it? They enjoy a life of luxury, aristocrats, wealthy. And they love the Romans being in power because it actually is their power. It's the power base behind them. Without the Romans, they would not have power. So, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. What a prophecy. What a prophecy, because here's the thing. Caiaphas's prophecy is correct. It says, now he, now he, being Caiaphas, did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So Caiaphas has this prophecy, a prophecy that says Jesus needs to die on behalf of the people. That's sacrificial language, isn't it? Dying in place of the people. But what does Caiaphas mean when he says it? He means that the destruction of Jesus will save the political nation. If we can destroy Jesus, the political entity of Jerusalem will be saved. We can stop any sense of revolt that Jesus might be bringing. We can stop whatever's going to come from the Romans. We can crush it if we crush Jesus. And when John, the author, says to us, he did not say this on his own initiative, but it was God speaking. What does God mean? Well, as Christians, it's easy for us to look back and see Caiaphas' prophecy of Jesus dying on behalf of the nation is salvific. 
Caiaphas, like many in the Gospel of John, spoke better than he knew. He thought he was saying Jesus' death would save the political entity, but what God intended was that Jesus' death would bring salvation for not just the Jewish nation, but for all the scattered children of God. And to us, as Gentiles, what's that mean? Us too. Us too. See, we remember Jesus' comments in John 10. I have another flock. I have sheep in another pen, and I must bring them from that fold into this fold, and they will be one flock with one shepherd. Jesus is going to bring the scattered children of God, the Jews, the Christians. Any who believe in him will become one flock with Jesus as their shepherd. So you have this beautiful prophecy that to the ears of the Christian sound, Wow! Caiaphas prophesied Jesus' salvific death. That's amazing. What is their response to this beautiful salvific promise? From that day on, they planned to kill him. Because they don't see it as salvific, do they? The plan for killing Jesus is one man should perish so that the whole nation does not. Even if he's innocent. If he dies, it will save the nation from destruction. Again, how little Caiaphas knew about what he was saying, even though he spoke, spoke true. They planned together to kill Jesus and this big ruling, right? here's what's interesting, they're the highest judicial council in all of Israel, right? in all of, of Jerusalem. They are the leading people. They have not met Jesus, they have not talked to him, they have not heard evidence. And yet, they've given a verdict, haven't they? And that verdict is for Jesus' execution. Well, this decision is enormous. It's enormous, and it must have leaked the public because we find out that many knew about it. Jesus' response to this verdict, verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Jesus retreats out of the public view, probably because he had, it's possible, he had allies, people who, who had believed, who had heard of this ruling, maybe even were in the room. Allies, powerful allies who this decision came out. And we know, we know that because the crowds are going to say the same thing at Passover. Do you think he's really going to show? They know too. They know too. So Jesus retreats from the public eye. And you can sense in Jesus that he must know his hour is near. His hour is near. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus, and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? 
Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. The Pharisees' response. Let me just remind you. The Pharisees' response to a dead man coming back to life at the power of Jesus' voice is to kill that man. Listen to the callousness of that. The callousness of a human heart that would say, in response to the very power of God working, I must destroy it. The chief priests. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, just like she does. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him, with Jesus. So they have this great celebration. We don't know exactly what the occasion is. Maybe it's in honor of Jesus and his great power to raise Lazarus. Maybe it's a celebration of Lazarus' just raising, that Lazarus has come back to life. They have this beautiful banquet, this celebration. And of course, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, it's, it's there. It's there with them in Bethany. And Jesus shows up. And he is reclining at the table. Martha's serving them. And it says, Mary then took a pound, a very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Imagine Mary, if you will, getting down at the feet of a man, her teacher, her, her Lord, and wiping his feet with her hair. Remember, in this culture, only slaves touched feet. In fact, remember, as we go to chapter 13, a foot washing takes center stage. And what does Peter say when Jesus gets down to touch his feet? Never, Lord. You will never wash my feet. Why? Why does Peter reject that? Because it is the act of a slave. Jesus is my master. I would never let him take the place of a slave at my feet. That's Peter's rejection of that act. Only slaves do that work. Mary, humble, humbled by the resurrection, resuscitation of her brother, gets down at the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet dirty, covered in filth from walking in the days of only sandals and dust and everything, excrement <coughs> on the roads, and wipes his feet with her hair. First Corinthians tells us that a woman's hair is her glory. Paul says that. Mary takes her glory 
and wipes the feet of her master with it. Imagine the humility of that. We'll come back to that. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, even now, in John 12, Judas already has it in his heart to betray Jesus. It doesn't just happen magically at the Last Supper. Judas is already thinking of betraying Jesus. And, and we know that, you know, a lot of us have never thought about this. You know, I, I think this is one of the first times I've ever thought about this, is that Jesus retracted from public life. In order to kill Jesus, they needed a betrayer. He wasn't walking publicly. They couldn't find him. Judas had already heard the reports. He already knew what he was going to do. The betrayer to turn him into the authorities. Judas, the one intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? You can hear his indignation. We could have done a lot of good with this money. If only we had used it for a better purpose. I mean, what a waste to put it on Jesus' feet. Think about what we could have done for the poor that are around. How much money we could have given them. How much better life we could have taken care of them with this money. It's a reminder, isn't it? It's a reminder that the intentions matter. This verse is going to go on to tell us that obviously he had other motives, but it's amazing how much we can get lost in activism or social justice or any of these things for their own sake and lose worship in the process. Judas is an example of that. See, he speaks so compassionately, doesn't he? And yet it's a trick. It's a facade. It's a lie. There has to be a balance. There has to be a balance because we must be compassionate and we must serve people and we also must worship our Savior. And here's an example of one who said, hey, we, we could do more with this. And Jesus rejects it, doesn't he? He rejects that. No, this is adoration of me. What's interesting, too, is we have to think about, again, we're, we're reminded of the, the lavishness of what Mary did. 300 denarii. We could just think about silver and try and do an approximate valuation, which is often what's done. right? And, uh, let's take silver and think about it and how much that would be worth today and all that. Um, what's more interesting about the denarii is, is it was the standard for a day's wages. She gives a year's salary in this one act. A year's salary for a full-time employed worker of that day. She breaks for Jesus. 
In fact, it's, it's interesting. Now, we don't know. Mary and Martha, they could have been a wealthy family. Maybe that's where that came from. They had wealth, and so they could buy something very costly. That's possible. It's also possible that that was all Mary had. Her inheritance. The gift that was given left to Mary from her family. And that inheritance was everything she had left and she breaks it on Jesus' feet. We don't know. But we know it was a very costly gift. goes on in verse 6. Judas said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. It's interesting, as I studied this week, I noticed something, I, I read something, I was a should be a, a scary, a, a scary recognition for those of us who are pastors and we're not um, fully committed, I would say. Remember in John 10 what it said about the hired hands? It said two things. They were unconcerned and they're thieves. A bad shepherd, a, a bad pastor, is compared to Judas. He wasn't concerned, and he was a thief. Same thing we see in John 10. That should be humbling. That should check pastors' hearts. A bad pastor is a Judas, a betrayer of his Lord. Jesus responds to Judas, the betrayer. Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Why does Mary do this anointing? When are people anointed in the scriptures? The number one thing is they're anointed as king. In Mary's mind, it's very possible she is anointing Jesus, saying, you are the king of Israel. I anoint you. Maybe that's what John's trying to suggest to us. This anointing is a, a kingly reality for Jesus. And probably to the confusion of everyone there, Jesus says what? No. This is my burial anointing. My hour is almost here, and this is the anointing of my death. And for John, those two realities live together, don't they? In fact, John would say that this anointing for his burial actually is his anointing for his kingship. When is Jesus made king of Israel? When he's lifted up at the crucifixion. In fact, John says, they put a sign right there. King of the Jews. In Latin, Greek, and 
Aramaic. That everyone would see King of the Jews on the cross. See, Jesus is enthroned as king at his crucifixion in John. This anointing that Mary is possibly doing to anoint him as king is the same thing as his anointing for being buried. His kingship starts at his crucifixion. Jesus says, the poor will never leave you. They will always be around, but I don't have much time left. Let Mary show her affection and devotion for me. Verse 9. We return to the chief priests. We've left the beauty and devotion of Martha and Mary. We return to how hard-hearted humanity can be. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that Jesus was there at the banquet. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. They were intrigued. Who is this man who's been dead and now is back to life? Is it real? Did it really happen? Can anyone actually confirm that he was really dead? Is anyone there to see Jesus do it? They're intrigued. Their curiosity is piqued. What's the chief priest's response? As if the callousness to murder Jesus is not enough. Their hearts are even harder. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Once again, the good shepherd contrast, isn't it? Jesus, the good shepherd, comes into Jerusalem and raises Lazarus back to life. And the, the real shepherds, the chief shepherds of Israel, what's their goal? To put to death. To put Lazarus back to death. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And the chief priests are thieves and not concerned about the sheep, like Judas. Like the hired hands of John 10. And we're left with that contrast before Jesus enters Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. The last thing we hear before Jesus enters Jerusalem for these last days of his life, the last period of his life, the chief priests are ready to kill Lazarus, and yet there's a few, a select few, who really devoted themselves to Jesus, like Mary and Martha, but the establishment wants him dead. They want him dead. But I'm struck by Mary and Martha. I'm struck by how beautiful their faith and devotion is. I'm struck by the Gospel of John and its honoring of women. I'm struck by the Gospel of John and its honoring of disciples who were unknown. Not the great apostles that we all know from the Synoptic Gospels, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but these people that we'd never heard of. 
that are new to us, the Thomases, the Mary, the Marthas. It's beautiful, and, and what's interesting to me is that when we get to John 13, there's a, well, excuse me, in John 12, there's actually two examples, I think, of Mary and Martha. And they're held up as the example of what true discipleship looks like. And it's kind of inconspicuous, but it's interesting. Mary, uh, excuse me, I'll start with Martha. Martha is said to be serving Jesus. Serving Jesus. And in John 12, as the chapter comes to a close, Jesus says, if anyone would serve me, you must follow me. It's the only time that word, serve, serve, diakoneo in Greek, is used in the gospel are those two instances. See, Martha is the example of service. Only time those two things are used is Jesus saying, if you want to be a disciple, you must serve. Only one person is said to be serving in the gospel, Martha. Martha is the only person that that word is used of. And of course, what does Jesus do in John 13? He washes his disciples' feet. And what does he say? He says, what I have done for you, you should do for one another. A new commandment I give to you, love one another. By this the world will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. He holds up the washing of feet as the example of humble, serv servant, sacrificial love in the kingdom, in the church. And yet, only Mary washed Jesus' feet. None of the other disciples. They all had their feet washed by Jesus as Jesus served them. Only Mary has the claim that I washed the Lord's feet. Mary and Martha are held up as the example of servants in this gospel. These two women, two sisters, who love Jesus. Very different, different personalities different ways they approach everything related to Jesus. We saw it in John 11. You see it in Luke 10. Martha was serving. Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, but they are both held up in the Gospel of John as the example of disciples of Jesus. My prayer for us tonight is we'd all respond like Martha and Mary. That we would do whatever it is God has called us to do. Serve like Martha. Sit at Jesus' feet in adoration like Mary. Whatever it is God has made us to do. But we would do it with lavish devotion to Him. All the while recognizing that there are people out there who will plot and scheme. Who will seek our destruction, seek the destruction of Jesus' name. Judas's, even in our own midst, betrayers. And yet, like Jesus, like Jesus, we even wash betrayers' feet.
We wash all feet. All the feet. At the table. In John 13, Jesus washes Judas' feet. Something to ponder. Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed by him. He washes his feet. Let's live like that. Let's live like the kind of servants, the kind of lovers of people that do good even when we know that nothing but evil will be returned for our good. Let me bless you tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for each person in this room. Lord, I pray this week they would be reminded reminded of the lavish devotion of Mary and that they would all in their own way and in their own heart devote themselves to you again this week and do something extravagant in their love of you. Because we know whatever we could offer, we could offer everything we have, everything we are, and it would pale in comparison to what you offered for us. Father, you offered your very own Son, your precious, your beloved, so that we might find salvation. Lord, I pray that each of us would be reminded of that. Pray we would be blessed this week. Pray we would be a blessing to others this week. Pray all these things in the name of your precious Son, the one who died, the one who took our place, the one who was willing to lay down his life like he said he had to for his life to be taken. The one that you planned to give on our behalf. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for being here. I don't think I said it, and it doesn't matter there's no one on there, but I think this is going to be our last week of doing Zoom. So our, our new plan is to head towards the podcast. So that's up every week. Monique usually has it up Monday or Tuesday. So the plan is to head that way and give more options for people to, to listen anytime they want and, and whenever they have the option. So I think our, our subscription just ran out for Zoom. This oh, okay. We decided so to, to this would be the time to yeah. let it go. Yeah. Love you all.